And then uh, all of you other folks, why don't you open up those Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Going through the book of Acts, one of my favorite books, such an exciting book. Um, just in, in also seeing the plan of the Lord and the power of the Lord for the local church. Uh, quick review, if you're, if you're there in Acts, you could flip back to chapter 1 and just see a uh, little recap. In chapter 1, Jesus had just risen from uh, the dead and he spent 40 days uh, resurrected, showing himself to be alive. And the language is used there that it was with many infallible proofs that he showed himself to be alive. And, uh, and so after those 40 days, he took his disciples up on the Mount of Olives and he told them uh, to go back into Jerusalem. He was going to ascend to the Father. Uh, they needed to go to, to Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Father, uh, which we know to be the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and he says there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, one, one of the key verses of the book of Acts, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Judea, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And that's that's not only a key verse, but it's even an outline for the breakup of the book of Acts. You got about the first uh, seven chapters or so of the book of Acts, and you have evangelism and witnessing happening in the, the hometown of Jerusalem. And then you've got Judea, the, the gospel branches out of Jerusalem, goes into kind of more a county and or regional area. Judea, Samaria, that's in like Acts chapters uh, 8 and 9. And then uh, by chapter 13, uh, you get to the uttermost parts of the world part of the book of Acts, which is of course the bigger chunk of it, where missionary ventures happen into Asia Minor, into Asia, into Europe, uh, all the way to Rome. And so you see that breakup of the book of Acts. So really the book of Acts, church history, chapter one, disciples go into Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. When he comes upon you, you'll have boldness and courage to go tell the world about me. Okay. And so they do that by chapter two, there's 120 believers there in Jerusalem. They're waiting on the Lord. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and, uh, and it's, he's manifested there with a rushing mighty wind sound, uh, cloven tongues of fire upon their heads. Uh, they begin to speak in other tongues. And when, uh, the passer buyers heard this commotion going on inside this room, uh, they asked, Hey, how come you redneck fishermen, uh, know how to speak, you know, Parthian, you know, how do you know how to speak, um, Mesopotamian, you know, or whatever. And, um, they're like, it's the Holy spirit. He knows how to speak that. And Peter used that as an opportunity to share, uh, the gospel and Peter, who was once a, a cowardly lion, you know, running away, uh, and denying Jesus three times here, he's speaking boldly in front of the very people that killed Jesus. And many people come to the Lord that day. And by the end of the, of chapter two, uh, there's this great statement that in, in chapter two, verses 42 through 47, that shows us the practice of the early church was that they would gather together continually, regularly. And while they were together, they would spend time in the word, studying the apostles doctrine. What else would they do? They would pray, right? They would have fellowship and break bread with one another. And that's a practice of the early church that we see churches doing all throughout church history. Something that we do here as well. The bread that we break um, just has maple glaze on top of it, right? That's, uh, that's what our fireside fellowship time sees. 
Uh, by chapter three, the church is growing and Peter and John go to the temple at the hour of prayer. That was their custom. They see a paralyzed man there begging and they end up praying for him and he's healed. He goes walking and leaping and praising God. And it was a notable miracle that had occurred and it gave them another chance to tell everyone about Jesus. It wasn't us that healed this guy. It was Jesus. And then they were able to tell about Jesus. Well, this group of religious leaders called the Sadducees don't appreciate such a message about Jesus being uh, preached, especially the resurrection of the dead. And so they come and they put uh, John and um, and Peter in prison. And it just is another chance for them to share the Lord. Uh, by chapter uh, 5, the early church is um, has a purification moment. If you remember Dustin teaching that just a couple weeks ago with Ananias and Sapphira, were you here for that? What seems is like, man, a little extreme, Lord. Uh, what are you doing smiting these people for hypocrisy? Well, when you think about it, have you ever shared the Lord with people and invited people to know the Lord or invited people to church? And what is one of the biggest complaints against Christianity and Christians? It's what? hypocrisy, right? Even today, hypocrisy is like a, a disgusting sore on the face of, of the church. And, and is it true that oftentimes we're hypocrites? Yeah. Guess what? It's called sin. Guess what? I'm a big sinner who needs a big savior, right? Um, but when we find that we're hypocritical or we find that we're sinning, we don't want to just like boast in that. We want to say, man, I grieve over that and I want to repent of that. And it's only by the grace of God that we can be forgiven and cleansed of our hypocrisy. Remember Blaine Jensen, one of the elders in the church a while back, Blaine used to say, Hey man, I'm just a beggar who knows where the bread is, you know? And I always loved that. It's like, Hey man, you know what? Yeah. I just have a big, I'm a big sinner in need of a big savior, you know? And so the Lord does this great uh, work of an example of showing that in his church, um, it's not okay to be living lives of hypocrisy, lies of lying, lies of exaggeration. And that's something that like in that instance, he dealt with it in a very severe way. Just like Romans says, consider the goodness and severity of God, right? We love the goodness part. Oh, he is so good to me. He's like a He's like a something and I'm like a tree bending beneath, you know, right? It's like, oh, I love singing about that. It's like, next verse, Matt, you're going to write it for the next time you sing it. Like something about the severity of the Lord. But he also killed Ananias and Sapphira for their hypocrisy. And blah, blah. you're like, it's, it's the lesser known, less popular song in that, right? Um, David Crowder didn't get that memo, you know, when he made, but, uh, you know, but it, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those that are practicing righteousness and walking in truth goodness, but on those that will practice sin and, and walk in the, the ways of the wicked one, uh, wrath is what Romans says. And so he's a severe God and he dealt with sin severely there, even giving them a chance to repent before dealing with it. And that leads us to where we're at in the book of Acts right now. Um, Ananias and Sapphira have just died because of their hypocrisy. If you're like, what is Rory talking about? Go read the book of Acts. Go just read chapter five, the first few verses, uh, even the end of chapter four. But what happened when the smiting happened of Ananias and Sapphira? Look at our verse 11 today, Acts chapter five, verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So when there's 
great purifying that happens in the church where sin is confessed and repented of and dealt with. And even there's judgment that happens towards sin. That's called purification. That's purity. When that happens, purity brings power. Okay. Now purity is not something we got to be afraid of. The purifying work of the Lord is not something we need to be afraid of. We welcome it. Like Hebrews 12 says, what one among you has a son that he doesn't correct, right? Correction is something that shows the love of the Lord towards us. And when he loves us by correcting us and refining us and brings purity into our souls and our heart, that creates power within the local church, ministries of power, gifts of power. And here we see that uh, this purity brought fear upon the church. Not so much a, ah, although there probably was a little of that after Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead on the ground. Uh, but the type of fear, it speaks of reverence. It speaks of a reverence for the holiness of God, that God is holy. And as Isaiah would say in chapter six, when he sees the holiness of God, he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man with unclean lips and I dwell with a bunch of people of unclean lips, right? Uh, and so fear came upon the church like, whoa, search me, O God, as the psalmist says, and know my heart and see if there be in me any wicked way. Lord, search me. Or as the Proverbs say, uh, the fear of the Lord is to hate all evil. And so we sing, we choose the fear of the Lord, right? For the fear of the Lord is to hate all evil. So what happened after the Ananias and Sapphira? It was, it was severe, no doubt. But it was also loving of the Lord to show his church that he desires his bride to be pure and spotless, okay? And so that led for purity within the church. And verse 12 shows us power within the church that through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done done among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And so the Lord granted great signs, great wonders, things that cause awe when you hear about them. Um, Awe, which then results in going to Jesus, right? Uh, that's what a sign does, right? It points to the greater object, right? And that's a biblical sign or a spiritual sign is the same way. Someone gets healed, right? Or someone um, has a miracle happen, you know, or uh, the provision in some miraculous way or something. And it's, well, praise the Lord. Who is this God that would do such great things? I want to know him and I want to make him known. Uh, and so great wonders were done among the people. This little phrase at the end of 12, they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Perhaps that's one of the greatest miracles that we saw here is that people fellowship together in unity. You believe that still happens today or it happened back then? I believe it happens today. I think it's happening in this church, actually. People gathering together and having unity. Feel free to put that thing up. Don't let it Hey, you're the boss, Tanya. You just roll that thing up. Don't let it smack you in the head or close the window either way. Take a poll. Who wants the window closed? Or a, <laughs> oh, good. Oh, what do you know? The head deacon will take care of it. Okay. So, uh, so there's this great unity that happens. And wherever there's a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit and there's a work of the Holy Spirit happening, there's unity that happens. The book of Ephesians, Paul tells us that 
that it's the spirit, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of unity who brings the bond of peace. And, and so they were in one accord with unity and they were at a place that I love, a place called Solomon's porch. It was a place on the temple Mount outside the temple courts that had these beautiful columnades and, and a great covering. A few weeks ago, uh, we learned about Solomon's porch and I was just talking about how much I love a good porch. You know, anybody else here, you just love a good porch. And Alan Jackson loved it. That's why he wrote where I come from. There's a lot of front porch picking, you know, get your guitar, drink some iced tea or lemonade, you know, and just hang out. Also a great place to preach the gospel, right? A little bit elevated. It's covered. You can use it as an opportunity to share. And that's where the early church early on would preach the gospel in the temple court area to people that were familiar with the God of Abraham. They would share the Messiah of Abraham and the savior of Abraham. Uh, the beautiful phrase was said there in chapter four of we can't, but help preach the things which we have seen and heard. That's the reason we named our youth group. When I was a high school pastor, uh, we called our youth group Solomon's porch or the porch. Cause it was just a place that we desired kids to be raised up, to be evangelists and go out and tell people uh, about Jesus. Now, verse 13 tells us that none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. So all these people that are becoming Christians, you know, they are admiring the boldness of the apostles. They're out there preaching the gospel. They've already been arrested once, you know, um, but but they're not quite there yet that they'll be joining them, them on that evangelistic crusade or that tour. Um, but respect, respect, right? Props, you know, but I won't be joining you on this muster, right? <laughs> and so, uh, but there's, there's this great uh, respect there. John Stott says, on the one hand, there's this awestruck reserve. And on the other hand, there's a great missionary success, there's a paradoxical situation which often has recurred since then. The presence of the living God, uh, whether manifest through preaching or miracles or both, is alarming to some and appealing to others. Some are frightened away while others are drawn to faith. And we see in verse 14 of our text that believers were increasingly added to the Lord, both men and women. Uh, when you read the book of Acts, you see that God is a God of math right? Those of you that enjoy a good math um, book, which I think is all of us. I think we all enjoy some time spent in the arithmetic, but um, <laughs> nope, I don't think so. Uh, you know, but we see the Lord in Acts chapter two, verse 42 through 47, that he added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the Lord loves a good addition problem, right? Uh, in fact, 242 says, um, or I think it's in that passage rather that uh, it was stop commenting on it that he didn't add them to the church without saving them. And he didn't save them without adding them to the church. It really shows us the importance of the local church and being a part of the local church. But even more important, the first paramount thing is that we're born again. And when we're born again, he adds us into the flock or the fold or the family or the body or the building of, and each one of us would be living stones in that building. Um, but it, the most important thing though, is that we're saved first. So question for you today, are you saved? Are you born again? Have you come to know Jesus as your Lord of your life and the savior for your sins? Today's the day right now where you're at. You can just say, 
I'll take some of that action. You know, save me from my sins. Be my savior and be my Lord. And the Lord will uh, save you, um, pull you out of the, the quick sandy pit. And then he will also add you to the family and bring you into the fold. And so uh, not only do we see addition, but uh, with Ananias and Sapphira, we saw... Okay, there's a little of that. Uh, <laughs> and multiplication, I think it's in chapter three, we see multiplication. That word's used a few times in the book of Acts. So multiplication, no division though, right? The Lord doesn't like any division, and not, nor do we, or fractions. Um, but both men and women, right? Maybe a little encouragement after the Anan, Anan I did this the first service too. Ananias, right? And Sapphira, okay? Um, you know, it might've been a little like, whoa, uh, what's going on? And the Lord's like, hey, men and women are all welcome back. All right. Men and women can all be saved. It's such a beautiful thing. Wherever the gospel goes, there's liberty, there's salvation, there's great responsibility and roles given to women and freedom given in the cultures where there's been no Jesus. There's been great oppression on women, but wherever the gospel goes, it's really the, the the best women's lib movement you'd ever seen is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. Um, but multitudes of both men and women show up, you know, the multitudes, a word that's used to describe the people following Jesus around. Uh, maybe you remember like reading the book of Mark, especially he uses that word multitudes a lot, or I think it's King James that uses the word, a throng of people just around him, pressing closely to him. And one translation says that it's a populace of men and women that are now coming to the Lord. I like that, a populace or a population. The early church now has a population. Population, I think we're at, uh, what are we at by now? About 8,000 men plus women and children. So we're up in the, could be up in the 30,000 mark now, I'd say, uh, for the uh, for the early church. So, uh, so looking at verse 15, here's some more of just the power of the Lord moving at the time. So they brought out the sick, uh, they brought the sick out, into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Uh, Howard Marshall says that the idea that shadows had magical powers, um, whether that would be a beneficial thing or a malevolent thing was current in the ancient world and explains some of the suppositions of the people. So it was just a thing back then that they thought that the shadow had some sort of power to it. Um, but it's interesting the the same word is used by Luke in his gospel when he talks about the glory of the Lord falling upon people and overshadowing specifically, if you might remember, uh, how the Virgin Mary came to be with child. Remember how that's written that the Holy spirit overshadowed her and his glory was upon her as, as she had Jesus placed in her womb. And so, um, and so we have, uh, Perhaps that's just that the thought is, um, oh, that the glory of the Lord might come upon my sick friend and heal them. Um, there's a little criticism towards this, like, oh, that's just superstition, you know, and then others that might encourage, like, really, they just were exercising faith that Peter clearly is a guy who has the anointing of the Lord on him. And if I can just get close to him, I can have just the nearness to the Lord and experience that blessing. Um, someone's called it a faith touch point, you know, similar to when the woman with the issue of blood pressed through the crowd, uh, around Jesus and said, what, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, 
I can be made well. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse one tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. Uh, having faith essentially is that shadow or is that cloth or is that, uh, someone said once, it's kind of like, um, when you're trying to get the ketchup lid off the bottle and you got to grab like a rag with just a little bit dampness to it and you get a little more grip to it, right? Uh, sometimes there's that touch point that just helps us get there and, or a point of contact for people to uh, exercise their faith. In Acts chapter 19, 11, we're going to see that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs, hey, we're Crook County, right? We love a good hanky, right? My dad, a farmer, you know, till he passed away and he always had a hanky in his pocket and I never got it really. I'm more of a farmer, farmer blow, if you don't know. Okay. Uh, anyways, uh, but you know, apparently they were about hankies in the book of Acts too. So they'd bring hankies and uh, aprons, perhaps even like workers' aprons uh, brought from his body to uh, the sick and you know, what do you, what do you read then? Is it like, oh, a bunch of superstitious, uh, you know, into the weird mysticism, you know, or do you see like, oh, and also the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them, you know? So there was just something about just that spiritual touch point that caused more of a trust thrust to happen at the moment. Um, moving on into our text, verse 16, also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits and they were all healed. And so I don't know if this reminds you at all. It sounds like you're reading from the gospels, right? It just sounds like you're reading from Mark and the Galilean ministry, you know, and the people coming out of the Decapolis with their uh, sick and demon possessed and paralyzed people and people with epilepsy and the palsies. And, and I mean, this is exactly what's happening. And, and, you know, in chapter 13, we'll see the first time that uh, we are called Christians. And that phrase, Christian, uh, means little Christ. And it's not to mean that I'm Jesus, you know, and getting some weird thing like that. But it means like, no, we're out there representing the Lord and working in his power with his message. Um, and, uh, and you see the apostles doing that. They were out there representing the Lord and operating in his power with his message. And uh, Jesus spoke of such wonderful times of refreshing sick people, tormented people, all being healed. When he quoted in Luke 4, he quoted the book of Isaiah. I think it's chapter 60, maybe 64, um, where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Uh, and then at the end of Luke there, that passage, it says that Jesus closed the book and then he went and sat down. He gave the book to the attendant and he went and sat down and all eyes in the church were on him. And he says, today, this word is fulfilled in your hearing. He was ushering in that time of messianic blessing. And, uh, and you know, that promise is still for us today that he would be the one that would preach good news, the gospel to the poor. Just recently, our kids, we were memorizing this passage 
And um, I, I do all kinds of crazy things um, when I memorize stuff. I like actions. And when I went to a Christian school down in California, it was really awesome when I was the new kid and I had to memorize a verse. And I'm doing push-ups and stuff to in front of the teacher in the class to like, and you shall have power when the Holy Spirit comes upon, you know. And she didn't, she wasn't impressed. Just like you don't seem to be too impressed. You're like, you did a one-arm push-up? I mean, it's what I do. Um, but we were teaching the kids. I was like, there's, there's six things that the Holy Spirit's anointed me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, you know, uh, to uh, heal too, to heal the brokenhearted, <laughs> you know, just trying to teach my kids how to like be thinking of these things. Um, and you know, maybe you're here today and just, you just feel poor, maybe not financially, maybe financially, but even probably more desperately spiritual poverty. And you just feel empty. You feel bankrupt and you know, there's, there must be more from the God of love that we sang about today. And there's good news for you today that that God of love wants to know you and he wants you to know him. And he wants to give into your account righteousness and peace and love. And he wants to take you out of a place of being poor. Or maybe you're brokenhearted for many different reasons. You may be brokenhearted. And for you, there can be healing today in Jesus. He heals, there's a Psalm that says he heals the brokenhearted and binds their wounds. And maybe you're wounded and you're, you're brokenhearted. And, uh, you know, what a wonderful thing to just know that our God is a God that heals that. And through Jesus, healing is available for that. Uh, maybe you're held captive or maybe you're oppressed and there's liberty for you. If you're held captive by something, he's come to break the chains as, the, as Jesus says, he who the son sets free is free indeed. Indeed, today there's freedom. Come to Jesus and let him heal you, set you free, give you riches. Um, the tragedy is, as even in the book of Revelation, there's, there's the wicked woman who says, I sit as a queen and I see everything and I have need of nothing. And Jesus says, you're... You're so deceived. It's in a letter to the church. He says, you don't even know that you're miserable and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. And so he says, you know what? Like that's your status apart from Jesus, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so he says, how about this? How about you come to me and I'll give you freely the waters of life for those who thirst and I'll give you bread without cost. Uh, you know, and I'll give you, um, as he put it there in revelation, uh, I'll anoint your eyes with salve. That's what the Lord wants to do. He wants to anoint your heart with salve so that you're healed. And he wants to anoint your eyes with salve so that you can see. And so we just see this great kingdom work happening in the early church where multitudes coming from the surrounding cities. I mean, we're talking probably Jericho, you know, we're talking Joppa. We're talking all these surrounding, coming around to the area uh, and bringing their hurting people and they would be healed. Guys, this is kingdom work that's happening. Kingdom work that happens today as well. Look in verse 17. Then the high priest rose up. And that's always how a good part of a story goes, isn't it? You know, it's like, oh, good music playing in the background. It's like nobody ever appreciates that moment when the high priest rises up. It's like, oh, 
you're here and your friends, you know, because um, he does come with his friends. <laughs> the high priest rises up and all those who, maybe in the Old Testament, you'd read the good things about the high priest, right? Oh, Aaron's here, everybody. Yay, Aaron and the Levites, you know, and something happened between there and there that they're not stoked to see him. Um, so here comes the music behind it too. It's bum, 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 bum. Then the high priest rose up with, uh, there's no music in case you're wondering. Um, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, that part of the Supreme Court, not the Pharisees, but the Sadducees. The Sadducees were Sadducee because they b- didn't believe in the resurrection and they didn't believe in angels, right? So they didn't believe in uh, heaven. They didn't believe in, well, I think someone just said Jesus. Yes, you're right. They also didn't believe in Jesus, okay? Um, so they were from the sect of the Sadducees and they were filled with indignation or it's translated they were filled filled with heat and jealous zeal. Uh, That's not someone you want to mess with, right? But they're coming. What are you doing out here preaching and healing people? So here they come. um, And we we just had an encounter with them in chapter four. And now here we see in verse 18, and they laid their hands on the apostles and they put them in the common prison. Fun fact, we're in chapter three. We just saw Peter and John arrested. Here we have all the apostles, a part of this persecution, the second wave of persecution. I forgot in my introduction, reading Stott, the first wave of persecution happened with Peter and John. And after they were set free, they went to a prayer meeting and they were given more boldness. Uh, here, uh, this is the second wave of persecution. It's against all of the uh, apostles and they're going to be set free and they're going to do something incredible after their freedom. Um, but here we have all the apostles put in this common jail and verse 19, but at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people. All the words of this life. Anybody stoked to read these last two verses? I mean, this is incredible. I, the book of Acts movie needs to be made. I'm, I'm just waiting for it to happen. So they're in jail. They're in prison. An angel shows up. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Um, you know, you can, you can swing on a pendulum like too far over here where we're like, I don't even believe in angels. And oh, is that even real? You know? And then maybe on the other side, you could get into weird, like angel worship and stuff, but just to have a good feel theology of angels and their ministry and their role and their function as worshipers and their function as servants. And even how Jesus says that little children, angels always appear before the throne of God, you know, and, and he seems to have some sort of guardian angel thing going on. Um, but also, um, that even today, you know, there's these, these angels that minister to people who've inherited salvation. Some stories that we know of, of personal friends of mine in Nepal who have, uh, they got saved in, out of Tibetan Buddhism and being raised up to be the next lamas because, an angel appeared to them and told them to get ready. Someone's coming up the mountain and he's going to tell you about how to be forgiven of all your sins and how to know the creator of all of this. And so even now there's these ministries that you hear of, of the ministering spirits doing their work of service. Um, and 
R. Kent Hughes says there's a little bit of humor here that it was an angel that set them free because the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. So when they find out that they have escaped, they're going to be, well, how'd they get out? You know, and who came and broke, the, you know, like an old West movie and they came with horses and tied around the, the bars and yeah, broke the wall. To, no, like, let's read what happened. Uh, well, you see in just a little bit that when they heard that they entered the temple early in the morning and taught, but the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all of the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported saying, indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards were standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. So this is like a miraculous, some sort of passing through the walls or something like that. And, uh, and to know that it was angels or an angel that delivered them, that's really going to boil, boil the Sadducees butter, you know? Uh, and so at the time, uh, I should back up cause I hopped forward a little, what was the message of the angel? Go and speak to the people, all the words of this life. And what is the gospel? It's a message of life. Just like I just preached Jesus reading from Isaiah saying Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah and all you got, Hey, Jesus has come to, uh, bring you out of your poverty, your spiritual poverty, your spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus has come to heal your broken heart. Jesus has come to set you free from the bondage to sin and to death. These are all the message of the gospel and it's words of life. Do you ever open up your mouth and tell people the message of the words of life? Some of you, I think maybe this would be something totally new to you, but I believe that God wants to, to bring you into that. He has that for you. Uh, it's also interesting that the angel didn't just do it. Why don't you speak to them all the words of this life? We keep getting arrested. No one's going to arrest you. That's not the role of the angels. Somehow in God's sovereign plan, He's picked a bunch of folks like us, just the common people, right? To open up our mouths and tell people the words of life. And so let's pray today. We're not done. Someone you just got excited. Are we praying right now? I mean, we could, you know, uh, we're going to pray before we go that the Lord would give us that passion uh, to tell people the words of this life. And, uh, and so uh, the the leadership, the, the, the high priest, his buddies, um, they were getting ready to, uh, to question the apostles. And so they bring them out of the jail cell, you know, and they're not there, you know, they're not there. And so, uh, we're down in, um, verse 24. And when they, the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. I've, just studying this this week, I found that kind of humorous that that was the response. You know, you would think it would have been like, who broke them out and who, you know, but, uh, how'd they do it? And, oh, I'm really getting tired of these people, you know, but the response was, how's this going to end up? <laughs> What's the outcome of this going to be? Um, they may have been like, you know, we're kind of playing with fire. We're kind of messing with the one who's bringing all of these miracles to be and Jesus, who we killed. We haven't been able to find his body. The word on the street is he rose from the dead. Now he's somehow these guys got out of jail. I wonder how this is going to end, you know, and uh, I think it was just an honest assessment of their situation. So verse 25, uh, one came and told them saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple 
and teaching the people. And then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. So a little bit of an awkward moment. They're back out there doing exactly what we had forbid them to do. Now we got to go arrest them, but we can't use violence or we're going to get beat the beat down. And so let's just show up and just kind of be like, I think you guys know where you need to go. So they all followed him back to the council. And uh, when they brought them, they set them before the council. Verse 27, the high priest asked them saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So essentially the high priest had forbidden the apostles not to preach the name of Jesus. And we all know how that goes, right? You know, in our homes, you know, you try to like tell your wife a great suggestion and maybe casually forbid her to go somewhere. And then she says, oh, you forbid me. Well, I forbid you. And then it's just a match of forbidding and, you know, um, forbidden passion. Okay, no, um, <laughs> you know, or your oldest child, you're like, I forbid you. And they're like, I'm out of here. And they just totally rebel. Like forbidding generally just doesn't go over very well, right? Uh, and so the, didn't we forbid you not to preach the gospel? And then there's, there were three things there. We forbid you, number two, and look what you've done. You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, which to a Christian is like, all right, yeah, we're doing something right. That was our goal, actually. In Jerusalem, then we're going to head on out into the region of Judea and Samaria. Then comes the uttermost parts of the world. And there will be a phrase later on at the uttermost parts of the world where they say, these men who've turned the world upside down for Christ have come here too. Guess what as Christians, when you turn the already upside down world upside down, that's like a double negative, which isn't that like a positive depending on what, okay. Uh, you know, you're like, yeah, the upside down world is now right side up because of Jesus. And so the second thing that they say, you filled Jerusalem with this doctrine. They're like, fish bump, you know, yes. And then the third thing is, what do you intend to bring this man, Jesus's blood upon us? And they, I think they forgot their favorite memory verse, Matthew 27, 23 through 25. When Pontius Pilate asked them at the trial of Jesus, what evil? Crucify him. Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, let him be crucified. And Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising. He took water and he washed his hands in the multitude saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person you see to it. And all the people answered, what did they say? His blood be upon us and our children. And now something like two months later, they're like, you're intending to bring this guy's blood on us. It's like, how we forget, right? Now, the blood of Jesus, as far as his literal death is concerned, uh, may be upon their heads. We all know uh, in theology that it's on all of us, right? It was our sin that held him on that cross. But the beautiful thing is in just a minute, Peter is going to share the gospel with them that even for them and the blood of Jesus being upon their head, it can actually be for atonement that there is actually forgiveness for even them. He's going to bring that. I hope that wasn't a spoiler alert for you, right? Uh, but look in verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Didn't we strictly forbid you? We ought to obey God 
rather than men. Does this take anybody's mind back to Acts chapter four? If you go back to Acts chapter four, and I got to go back in my notes because I had, I had misplaced that scripture. Uh, verses 17 through 20, looking at verse 18 rather, they, this is when they were arrested the first time. The Sadducees called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said this, and guys, memory verse right here. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so Peter and John's message to that forbidding was like, the Lord's told us to go speak. We've got to speak. You know that we've got to obey the Lord. And it seems that they forgot that simple rationale because here Peter just has to tell them, look, you forbid me, but uh, he says, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, this is our second time in the book of Acts, second time in two chapters where we have a precedent set for us as Christians, uh, the principle of civil or ecclesiastical disobedience or civil disobedience. Uh, peaceful protest, if you will. Okay. So, um, and you know, I was just praying today. I was like, Oh, maybe we ought to just move on to chapter six, you know, but my old biology teacher told me each year I took the class from him. Um, (laughs) my old biology teacher used to say, if it's repeated, it's on the test. Okay. And so here two times in two chapters, we have this, didn't we forbid you to do something And we have the response of, hey, we've got to obey the Lord before we obey men, okay? So the great principle for us as Christians is this, two things. Whenever somebody in leadership that you're called to submit to, and by the way, to be sure, we as Christians are called to submit to other people, right? Uh, For one, we submit to one another in love, book of Ephesians. Uh, Wives submit to your husbands, right? In the same chapter, somehow, crazy paradox, we also submit to one another within marriage, okay? Uh, There are roles within marriage. Uh, We submit to our governing authorities in Romans chapter 13. Uh, We submit to church leadership. Uh, You see that in the pastoral epistles or in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. So, and and there's, there's different roles. We might go somewhere and there's someone in leadership. We submit to them. Uh, And that's a good thing. That's actually a sign of, like that we're filled with the Holy Spirit is we're okay. And we have joy in humbling ourselves and esteeming others as better than us or submitting to one another. Um, and, uh, but whenever in those relationships, two things happen. Number one, they forbid us to do something that God commands or they command us to do something that God forbids. That's where we have a biblical precedent to obey God first. Okay. And so, uh, here Peter does that. He says, uh, and and the other apostles also answering said, we ought to obey God rather than, than men. John Calvin said, therefore, if a father being not content with his own estate, do essay to take from God, the chief honor of a father, he's nothing else but a man. If a king or a ruler or a magistrate do become so lofty that he diminisheth the honor and authority of God, he is but a man. We must also think that of pastors. So really anywhere we have this, you know, there's roles and there's leadership and there's submission. 
If anyone gets too haughty and takes a place that God never designed for them, makes demands that God's never demanded, uh, then, then they ought to be just regular men. But you couldn't keep these good men down, right? These apostles. Winston Churchill said, a fanatic, a fanatic is someone who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. And these guys just keep talking about Jesus. Oh my goodness. What would people do if they that I'm a Jesus? Um, they found out that these guys are Jesus freaks. Okay. Um, and when Peter saw a man with a tattoo on his big fat belly that wiggled around like my, just DC talk, nobody here. DC talk, 1992 Christian K love. Where are you people? All right. Yeah. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Peter's preaching it right now. Maybe the other apostles were chiming in as well. Uh, Him, God has raised up, verse 31, to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. So it's a really short little gospel message that Peter speaks up to the high priest and the Sadducees. And he's just very straightforward with them, just as he was in chapter four, when he says, God, the father raised up Jesus. Now that could mean actually raised him up to a place of fame and popularity. And now that fame is getting out or, um, most likely raised him from the dead. Right. Um, so he raised up Jesus and here was your role in the matter. High priest and Sadducees, you murdered him. By hanging him on a tree. I was reading one old version last night. It was uh, a gibbet. I never, I was like, what's that? A gibbet must be some kind of post. Am I saying that right? Gibbet? Yes, it's right. Um, You know, but it's a quote really from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, where it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So Peter's just laying it down. He's saying, you murdered Jesus and you really tried to do him down by murdering him in a way that would cause extreme dishonor. You hung him on a tree, which according to Jewish law was a curse. And even according to the Romans, the cross was the worst form of execution that they had. Uh, But later on, Paul would say, uh, Jesus, who was cursed by hanging on a tree, he became a curse for us. Uh, that, That curse could be taken from us. And so he just bluntly, like, you killed Jesus, you murdered him, you hung him on a tree, God has raised him up. Not only is he risen from the dead, he's also very popular. And then in verse 31, he's, he's gone to a role of the right hand of the father, a place of authority, a place of honor. He's a prince there, and he's a savior. And what does he do from there? He gives from that place of honor. He gives two things. He gives Israel forgiveness of sins. What a beautiful thing. After just telling someone, you murdered the Messiah, you murdered the Christ, but there's forgiveness of sins for that. Jesus forgives today. Uh, and he also uh, gives repentance. He gives repentance. That's beautiful. That shows God's role in our salvation Multiple places in the New Testament, it says that God grants repentance. And maybe you have someone in your life that you're praying for. You desire them to be saved, to be born again, to be a Christian. Start praying for them to to Jesus 
who's at the right hand of the Father, pray to Jesus to grant your friend repentance. Lord, in your sovereignty, I don't know how it all works. (coughs) Excuse me. This person needs to repent, no doubt about it. But I just pray on your end, Lord, that you would just put this person in a place where they would repent. Grant it to them. Give them repentance. All throughout the New Testament, you see that phrase uh, that God gives that repentance and he gives forgiveness of sins. And so as we're getting ready to wrap up now, it's a good time for you to be thinking about, have I repented of my sins? God, grant me repentance today for my sin. Or Lord, I think of my friends and how they're needing you. Grant them repentance and forgiveness of sins. And Paul, uh, Peter says in 32 with his friends, we are witnesses to these things. And also it's the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So just a good encouraging message, really. I mean, sure, there was that little part about like, you murdered him, you know, you hung him on a tree. You did what the law said, not that, that's a curse. But there's forgiveness, there's repentance, there's the prince and the savior will give that to you today. And I think the outcome of this time is going to be good. I think that it's going to be received well by them. Don't you guys? It never goes well with these. Uh, When they heard this, they were furious and they plotted to kill them. The New English Bible says, I don't even really know what this means, but let's figure it out together. They were torched on the raw. Like, dude, I just totally shared that, yeah, you've done some bad things, but there's like forgiveness and repentance and the prince of life can be your, and it's like, oh, you done it now. You torched me on the raw, you know, chicken in the bread pan, picking out dough. I don't know what any of these things mean. Uh, or as William says, Luke graphically describes them as being sawn asunder. I don't know what that means either, but I think it's something like the legs taken out from under him. Like, with all of this torched in the raw and sawn asunder, these guys are not in a good mood right now. I suggest like holding off all of your requests, you know, from this board till later, until uh, they're in better moods, right? Um, but there is one guy, there's going to be a, a voice of some reason, a guy named Gamaliel. Are you ready to hear about Gamaliel? Uh, Then one in the crowd stood up, verse 34. He was a Pharisee, so he wasn't a Sadducee, he was a Pharisee. And and I'm learning more this time through that the Pharisees, although they they tried Jesus quite a bit when he was on the earth, they were a little more even-keeled and even-minded. And especially in the book of Acts, you see that it's the Sadducees that are the punks. Um, But And so here's this Pharisee, he stands up, his name's Gamaliel. He's a teacher of the law, he was held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. So he's like, put the apostles out. I want to talk to the council here. Uh, Gamaliel was the grandson for the esteemed teacher, Hillel. Uh, Hillel, who was an interpreter of the law. Uh, Gamaliel was given a respected title called Rabban, which means our teacher. And it was even more respectful than like rabbi or rabbani, which meant my teacher. Um, The Mishnah says of Gamaliel, since Rabban Gamaliel, the elder died, there has been no more reverence for the law and purity and abstinence died out at the same time. Uh, Stott tells us Gamaliel had a reputation for scholarship, wisdom, and moderation 
and he was honored by all the people. And then even Paul, the apostle, he had a special relationship with Gamaliel. In Acts 22, 3, he says, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and I was zealous towards God as all you are today. So when Paul was Saul of Tarsus, um, his teacher, his mentor was Gamaliel. In fact, Saul might have even been in this meeting right here. There's a probability that he was here uh, during this discourse or during, during this conversation. So Gamaliel stands up. And he says to them, verse 35, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, he's going to give us two examples of other guys that were kind of like Jesus, right? Some time ago, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. Uh, After him, after this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census Jewish zealots hated a good census, so he rose up, and he drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. So he's essentially saying, Jesus, he's probably, he just probably is just one of these guys. Just give it some time, right? He's going to say, I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it's of God, you cannot overthrow it. Uh, lest you even be found to fight against God. So it was really like just a, a, a word of wisdom for the moment. Um, and yet something that shouldn't be taken as just a carte de blanche wisdom for everything in life we go through. John Stott said, we should not be too ready to credit Gamaliel with having uttered an invariable principle to be sure in the long run, what is from God will triumph and what is merely human or diabolical will not. Nevertheless, in the shorter run, evil plans sometimes succeed, while good ones conceived in accordance with the will of God sometimes fail. So the Gamaliel principle is not a reliable index to what is from God and what is not. You know, in the long run, God wins, right? Jesus wins, right? Uh, That's how we'll know in the end, like, who was right? And it's been said that Jesus' resurrection was his great vindication. Uh, But... You know, sometimes wicked things, they have their run. You know, you got the Rajneesh going over an antelope, you know, and it's like, what was that all about? And how, you know, or you got Waco, you know, and David Koresh. And it's like, no one's going to say that you can't have my wife and all of this stuff. Like, no one's going to speak up. You know, even the wackos have their day, right? Uh, so this isn't like just a carte de blanche, like, it seems to be going well. I think it's from God. Like, step back, use some discernment. Open your Bible, people. Okay. Um, But in Gamaliel's case, it was actually a word of wisdom for the moment. And they all agreed with him in verse 40. And when they called for the apostles, this is good. Thank you, Gamaliel, for that word of wisdom. Apostles, come on in. You know what, guys? We'll just see how this pans out. You guys go on. Have a great day. Um, Oh, one more thing. We've got to beat you. I mean, it's customary. So uh, you read there in verse 40. uh, When they called for the apostles and put the beat down on them and beaten them, uh, Howard Marshall says this wasn't a small thing. They were doing that Jewish law of 39 lashes or 40 minus one, or what's also called as one from death. Each of the apostles would receive a scourging here uh, with, a, with the Jewish uh, whip. And then they would be commanded that they should not speak the name of Jesus. We forbid it. And then they let them go. 
And then verse 41, you guys, I have a star next to it in my notes because it's so beautiful. We're wrapping up. So they departed from the presence of the council, bitter, ticked off with a plan for vengeance. No, what does it say? They were rejoicing that they were worthy, uh, that they were rather counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And that's such a beautiful thing. And that's such a beautiful thing. It's like they're fulfilling what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are you when they persecute you and when they slander you and when they say all kinds of evil against you for my name's sake, for so they persecuted the prophets of old. Like you have your lot with the prophets, guys. They were rejoicing that they were worthy to be a part of Jesus's team. And you know, persecution, it happens today. Uh, It happens here. And I'm telling you guys, you start opening up your mouths and talking about Jesus like they did. Talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your neighbors, talk to your teammates. You start talking about Jesus and preaching the gospel. Praise the Lord, there's gonna be great, people are gonna get saved, all that, and people are gonna hate, right? People are gonna hate and people are gonna lash out at you. People are going to seethe. Start speaking biblical truth concerning current events. People are going to seethe, right? People are gonna be angry, but when they do, you can rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer. About 10 years ago, I remember on the Voice of the Martyrs uh, website that there were, I think it was China, if I'm remembering correctly, but uh, there was an invasion on a house church and men were taken out of the church and killed. The pastors were killed. Uh, uh, like a bulldozer was brought and they bulldozed the church over and it's all on video and on video in a translation the wives of the fallen men are, are rejoicing with great cheer. And they said this text, we are rejoicing that we were counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. A little bit different than our day and age, huh? A little bit different than our worldview and how we respond to pain. And then verse 42, we'll have the worship team come on up. And daily in the temple, oh, may I hop back real quick and quote Stott one last time? Luke's expression about rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer. He says, it's a beautiful antithesis, the honor to be dishonored, the grace to be disgraced. They were in fact doing what the Sermon on the Mount Jesus told them to do, namely rejoice in the persecution. And in our text, that daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus is the Christ. So did they obey the council after they left? Like, you know, know what they do daily kept it up. They kept preaching Jesus. Let's stand together. Lord, we just pray today that you would give us the same fervor, zeal, power, and care to open up these mouths about you, Lord, that we would preach, preach about the prince that we read about today, the prince and the savior who gives repentance and salvation. And today where you're at, there were a few pointed moments today where just the Lord was addressing you in your heart. Today might be the day for you where you would come to the Prince and the Savior and you would let him bring your heart out of poverty, bring your heart out of a place of brokenness and bring healing to you. You could come to the Prince and the Savior 
whoever lives to pray for you and you would ask him to set you free from captivity and undo every yoke, why don't you just ask him right now where you're at to do that? Why don't you ask him right now where you're at? Lord, give me repentance. Give me repentance, Lord. Help me to change my mind about sin. Help me to change my mind about my current situations. 